He has still risen, uh, and that changes everything. And so we are uh, going through a series called The Risen Christ. And what we're doing is we're looking at the various uh, opportunities that Jesus took, the conversations that he had, the appearances that he made after he rose from the dead. Uh, It has been said that about uh, a third of a couple of the Gospels are uh, during Holy Week, from Palm Sunday to the crucifixion or Easter. Uh, about half of John is, is uh, dedicated to that week. Very little is dedicated to the appearances after he rose from the dead, but there's several of them. And so we're going to look and see why the scripture gave us those conversations and those meetings with people specifically. Scripture tells us that he was here for 40 days, 40 days after the resurrection, before the ascension. So there's lots of opportunities that we have, but only a few are recorded for us. And so we think there's something there. We think there's something that we should push into and look at. And so that's where we're going to be today. Uh, If you use your device, uh, there's a really handy app called the YouVersion app, or you can find us on the Church Center. So if you download an app called the Church Center, uh, it's an app for us, Exchange Church, you'll find it, and then you'll hit a button right on the home screen that says Sermon Notes, and it gives you all the passages of Scripture that we'll use today. That'll be available for about a week after today. You can go back and take notes. You can check and make sure what I tell you is accurate, which I think you should. If you're turning on your Bibles, uh, probably the best place to turn would be Luke 24 and John chapter 20. We'll focus on those two today. Uh, The Apostle Paul writes uh, a few decades after Jesus has risen from the dead. He writes to the church at Corinth, and he says this to them in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 1 through 8. He says, Now I want to make known to you, brothers and sisters, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, in which you stand, by which you are saved, if you hold firmly to the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I handed down to you of first importance what I received, that Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, that He raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. And then it's as if He needs to and decides to focus on this aspect of the story. Paul writes that Christ died for their sins, He was buried, and He rose again, and then He doubles down, providing evidence and actual names of people that He appeared to. Watch this. He says that He appeared... um, to Cephas, then to the twelve. And after that, he appeared to more than 500 brothers and sisters at one time, most of whom remain until now. Some have fallen asleep. And then he appeared to James, then to the apostles, and then last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. So, so Paul is, is citing actual references of people who has seen the risen Christ. If there was ever anyone who could dispute this story, it would be those that he called out in this letter. The 500 witnesses, that's a lot of people. That wasn't just a, and some people have seen him raised. There's a very specific people. The church was exploding at this time. And so there's multiple people who would literally stand up with their lives and say, I saw him. 
I saw him after I saw him crucified. And so we are going to be looking at those accounts. And today we're, we're looking at the tomb, the actual, the, the, the morning that Christ rose and the interactions that he has. But I want you to know before we get into this passage of the tomb that it's one of the most debated passages in all of Scripture for a couple of reasons. One, we're asking you to believe that someone rose from the dead. That should, that should kind of take you back for a second because that doesn't happen. It's debatable because it should be debatable. It should be very debatable. If someone comes to you today and says, this person rose from the dead, your first thought should say, no, they didn't. Because that doesn't happen, right? So we're asking people to believe, and Scripture is pushing us to believe the impossible, that Christ rose from the dead. The second reason that this is uh, disputed is because all four Gospels record the story of the resurrection. All four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And all four of them record it a little bit differently. So some who are antagonistic towards Scripture and want to disprove uh, the, the inerrancy, meaning Scripture does not have errors, want to disprove that, they, they go to this passage, this story of the resurrection, and they point out Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John's story and the differences there. And it's this moment of, aha, see, the Bible's not reliable. Right. I'm going to give you a few reasons before we get into the story. why it, that's just a, It's just a weak argument. First, I don't know that me and Jana have ever told the same story the same way. Ever. In fact, when we tell a story to our friends, most often, if we're telling a story, if I'm telling a story, she'll interject a point that I thought was irrelevant. I was going to pass over that point of the story, but to her, it's a very important part of the story. I wouldn't have said that. I wouldn't have shared it. It doesn't mean that it's not true. It just means that that part of the story was an integral part for her. It means that that was something specific that she looked at or saw different than I do. I think um, not, uh, none of the Gospels make a claim that only... So, for example, there's a couple of discrepancies between how many angels were at the tomb. Uh, one Gospel says there was an angel sitting on top of the stone that had been rolled away. Another Gospel says that there was two angels inside the tomb, one at the head and one at the foot. Uh, another Gospel says that as they went in, an angel spoke and said, why are you weeping? None of the Gospels ever say there, were only one, there was only one angel. None of the Gospels says there was three angels. Most of the time, the, the Gospels will say something like there was an angel on, sitting on top of the stone. Or when we went in, there was two angels, one at the foot and one at the head. Another Gospel simply says when we went in, an angel spoke to us. So it's not at all that they're in disagreement. It's just that they're adding details that maybe someone uh, did, did not see as important. Second, there, all of these accounts can be and are true. And I believe that there were angels everywhere the gospel writers puts them. So there's probably additional information that they aren't giving us. Now, while John's gospel is the only one that records an interaction with Mary, we'll get there in a second, I believe that she probably stayed back while the rest of them had gone. Also, 
all the gospel writers were aware of each other's letters. Most theologians would put the gospel of Mark being written first, years before the other gospels. So this was not like some secret investigation room. Uh, These aren't audio recordings where they separate all of the apostles and they say, tell us what happened. And then they pick apart their discrepancies and say, you're all liars. this This is kind of crazy to me because Mark's letter would have been circulating around the church for years. And so when Matthew writes his letter, if he wanted to deceive someone, he would have looked at Mark's and said, I have to write it exactly like this. He would have looked at another letter and said, I have to write it exactly, I have to to make these two letters make sense. And so I'm going to take part of this and part of this, and now I'm going to blend them, and I'm going to tell them why Matthew said one thing, or Mark said one thing, and Luke is saying another, or something like that. So they, they were aware of each other's letters, and yet still their, their viewpoints looked different. You know how this goes. If, if you look at a situation or a circumstance, you probably see it differently. Uh, researchers tell us even uh, our blood pressure causes us to respond or see things out of fear and stress. We miss things, we gain things, we see things, we hear things. I would imagine that if I walked into an empty tomb and an angel spoke to me, that angel might be the only thing that I saw or heard. There could be 70 other angels in the room, but as one is speaking to me, I'm imagining that my gaze and my focus is clearly on that. There's other reasons, uh, of course, too. There's one uh, story, a cold case detective, J. Warner Wallace, uh, was a very highly decorated detective specializing in uh, cases that were at least a decade old. And as an atheist, he said that uh, he set out to disprove the resurrection of Christ. But one of the things that he often talks about was the multiple counts and their, their varying points kept him pursuing even further. He said that when he was a detective, even going to a crime scene, the first thing that he would do was to call the officers and ask them to separate the witnesses. Not those who are being charged with the crime, but the actual witnesses. He said he wanted different viewpoints. He did not want them to collaborate. He did not want them to remind each other of different positions of the story. He wanted different viewpoints. And he says in his story that if any point in time two stories were identical, he discounted them. He said if the two stories were absolutely identical... That means that those persons had collaborated with their story and had most likely forgotten certain things and added them and they were confused on what. But he said if there's slight variances, he understands that most likely their account is true. He actually ended up becoming a believer because of his pursuit about uh, disproving uh, the resurrection through the varying stories in the gospel. Here's what I'm trying to say, though. I don't think that anytime anyone ever pushes on us about Scripture, questions in Scripture, that we should shrivel up in a corner, just give up and roll over and say, "Uh, well, I, I don't know what to say, but nor do I think that we should not do our homework. I believe that the Bible is more reliable than you can ever imagine. And I believe that it's without error. We at Exchange Church believe that the Bible is without error. 
It's a big claim. It's a massive claim that, that writers writing through the power of the Holy Spirit would write this, that God would preserve it for us. That's why we believe, we believe that we don't get to pick and choose what we believe from these pages. But we submit our lives to them. So as you turn to, to Luke chapter 24, we'll, we'll start with kind of a, one of their accounts and we'll move our way into John's. But I want you to think about the last time that you completely and totally wasted your time. Maybe a day where you set out on a project. It was one of those days, if you're like me and you have a project around the house, it's not even near completed until you've gone to Lowe's or Home Depot like four times. Right? You know on your third trip, you're halfway there. You know, Maybe you do something else. Last week, we... Um, we set out and we, we buy all of our animal feed in Benson. It's almost an hour away. There's a feed mill there. I've talked about it before. And last Friday, we, we drove. We made the trip. We had a lot of feed to buy. And we pull up and nobody's there. And there's a sign on the door that says, like, closed for Good Friday. And I'm like, good for you guys. <laughs> I'm so glad. I'm so glad that you celebrate Good Friday. But if I light something on fire, I wonder if someone will come and open a door for me. You know, That feeling of like completely wasting your time or your day is, is just, you go to bed mad, don't you? And so I want you to think of maybe how the disciples were feeling in this moment. I want you to understand that many before Jesus came and claimed to be the Messiah. And they had all died. And nothing happened. And so when Jesus goes to the cross and he dies, I want you to think about this for a second. All of the disciples had given up their lives, moved from their families, James and John left their father in the boat with other servants. They left the family business. And they watched Jesus die. And they've locked themselves in a room because they think that they're next. So not only are they mourning the loss of their dear friend, they're, I believe that they're mourning the loss of their lives, of their actual lives they've walked away from, and I believe that many of them are just, to be honest, sad, and they feel like fools. They feel like fools because they've left their lives to believe someone who said he was the Messiah, and now he's dead. So as we look at this passage, I think I want you to view it in this light. And I want you to think about how the last three days of the text have been for Jesus' disciples. I want you to remember that they are not at the garden tomb on Sunday before light going 10, 9, 8. Nobody's counting down. Nobody's there. 
Nobody's holding like a, a, a sunrise service. They haven't set up camp just outside of the tomb. There's no food. There, there's nothing. Why? Because they don't believe Jesus is rising from the dead. Dead people don't do that. They're locked in a room, fearful for their lives. I'm sure they've measured their lives the last three days and remembered the last three or more years with Jesus and wondered if it was worth it. They've lost their friend. They've never expected, even though Jesus had told them that they would see him again. So that's where we pick up our story. In Luke chapter 23, he says, And a man named Joseph, who was a member of the council and a good and righteous man, he had not consented to their plan of action, a man of Arimathea, a city of the Jews, who was waiting for the kingdom of God. And this man went to Pilate and he asked for the body of Jesus. And so he took it down and wrapped it in linen cloth and he laid him in a tomb and cut out in the rock where no one had ever lain. And it was the preparation day, and the Sabbath was about to begin. And so now the women who had come with him out of Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. And so there's this ritual that the, the Jewish people would uh, have a custom of wrapping them in cloths, uh, anointing the body with oil and spices and all of these things. And so Jesus was laid in the tomb in such a hurry that he was wrapped in linen, but they didn't have time to do all of the things that they should do for him. And so they came, they saw where he was laying, and they made preparations after the Sabbath to do this. And so they returned and prepared spices and perfumes. And on the Sabbath, they rested according to the commandment. So Jesus' body was quickly taken off the cross and placed in a tomb. They didn't have the time or resources to properly lay him uh, to rest for a couple of reasons. One, the trial had uh, so quickly and illegally happened that by the time Jesus was on the cross, he was, his followers hardly knew what was happening. Additionally, the Sabbath was quickly approaching, so they couldn't break Jewish law and no work could be done. So they laid him there. They prepared to come back. So chapter 24, verse 1. But on the first day of the week at early dawn, they came to the tomb bringing spices which they had prepared. Now remember, this is day three, and they are bringing spices to anoint the body of Jesus. They wouldn't bring spices if they thought that he would raise from the dead. Not to mention, if they listened and understood the words of Jesus, they would know that specifically three days later, he said that he would not remain dead, but he would rise again. Why would you anoint the body of spices in that way? Why would you go through the trouble of getting permission and the soldiers to roll the stone away from the tomb so that you could go in to anoint the body if you thought there was any chance at all that he was going to raise from the dead? Do you understand what I'm saying? His followers, his closest followers, did not believe him. Jesus was very specific over his ministry to his disciples. I will die and I will raise again in three days. And they did not believe him. Why? Because dead people stay dead. Notice what Matthew says in Matthew chapter 28, he says it this way. 
Now after the Sabbath, as it began to dawn towards the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to the tomb. And behold, there was a severe earthquake that had occurred, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled away the stone and sat upon it. His appearance was like lightning, his clothing white as snow, and the guards shook in fear of him and became like dead men. And the angel said to the woman, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who has been crucified. And, and watch, pay very close attention to the words that he chooses here. He is not here, for he has risen just as he said. Come and see the place where he was lying. Mark chapter 16, verse 1 says it this way When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, Salome, brought spices so that they might come and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, they came to the tomb when the sun had risen. And they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they noticed that the stone had been rolled away, for it was extremely large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting at the right, wearing a white robe, and they were amazed. And he said to them, Do not be amazed. You're looking for Jesus the Nazarene, who has been crucified. He is his risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him? But go and tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you to Galilee, and there you will see him just as he told you. Luke chapter 24. And he says this, And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. And while they were perplexed about this, behold, two men suddenly stood near them, dazzling in white clothing. And the women were terrified and bowed their faces to the ground. And the men said to them, Why do you seek the living one among the dead? He is not here, but he is risen. Remember. Remember how he spoke to you while he was still in Galilee, saying that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and on the third day raise again. And they remembered his words and returned from the tomb and reported all of these things to the eleven and the rest. There's a couple of things here that I want to point out. One is the angels, although in all cases, even in John's, would push those who are coming in looking for Jesus to remember. Just as he said. But also, I love that the angels invited them in to say, come and see. It's amazing that the angels did not say, you dummies. I would show you, but you need to have faith. I would show you, but that would be you not believing. I would show you, but you, you should be better than this. You were taught this. I love that the angels invite Jesus' friends and disciples in to say, you should look for yourselves. He's not here. I love that the angels, and, and therefore the Lord who has sent them, does not expect us to read Scripture and just, just believe. But rather, He invites us in to use our minds, our faith, our hearts, and say, like, come and see for yourself. 
The second thing is I love these words that he chooses to use over and over and over and over again. In all of the accounts, this is very consistent. He says, remember, just as he said. And this is a point that I think uh, the angels are making here. He says this, remember. And so this is what I believe. The resurrection proves that Jesus can and will do what he said. The resurrection proves that Jesus can and will do what he said. Remember. Uh, The Gospels would say, just as he said. Why is this important? Because Jesus made many claims over his life. Over the span of his ministry, Jesus made many extraordinarily difficult claims. One was this. That he had the power to forgive sins. Do you remember this story? There was a story where Jesus was teaching and uh, there was a a man crippled from birth. Uh, He was trying to get to Jesus because Jesus had the power to heal uh, the sick and the lame, the deaf, the blind. Uh, He had the power to cast demons out. There was people with leprosy that Jesus literally spoke to and their disease went away. So this man was trying to get to Jesus. It says the whole city was gathered around this house listening to Jesus teach. And so his friends climb up on the roof, tear it apart, and lower him down in front of Jesus. I don't know if you remember uh, what Jesus says to him in response, right? But it's recorded in Mark chapter 2, verse 5. And he says, And Jesus, seeing their faith, said to the paralytic, Son, son, your sins are forgiven. I love this. That's not really why he came. You know, the paralytic is sitting there on his mat, hoping to walk out of that place. But he does have enough faith in Jesus to know that Jesus is the only one that can heal him. And so Jesus does something spectacular, and he sees this guy and he says, your, sons are, your sins are forgiven. And so obviously, uh, some of the scribes were sitting there reasoning their hearts and says, why does this man speak that way? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? They ask a very appropriate question. Whoa, 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 whoa. You're saying that his sins are forgiven. Only God can forgive sins. And so Jesus actually answers their thoughts. And he says, I know what you're thinking. You're saying, how can I prove that I have the ability to forgive sins? Nobody can see if their sins are forgiven or not. And so the way that I'm going to prove I can do what I say I'm going to do is by show you that this man will get up and be healed. And he says, get up, take your mat and go. So he gets up proving that he can do what they cannot see. You tracking with me? The resurrection, when Jesus is saying these things, and the angels point the disciples back to remembrance, he's saying, remember this, that Jesus said that he was going to die and that he was going to be raised again on the third day. If he does that, remember everything else that he says and believe it. You know, Jesus uh, raised a few people from the dead. Not one of them ever predicted or prophesied that they would be dead and then be raised again. Not one of them were raised from the dead by their own power. Not one. 
And so while Jesus displayed this power to raise the dead multiple times, he's the only one in history, the only one ever to prophesy his own death, burial, and resurrection and prove it on the third day. This means that whatever he says, we can believe. It means that whatever he says, what promises he makes, we can believe. It also means that whatever restrictions he places, we have to abide by. It means that he speaks truth. And so when he has the power to forgive sins, he also makes another claim. He also makes another statement that's very bold. He says this in John chapter 14, verse 6. I am the way, the truth, the life. And here's the, the really bold statement. No one. No one comes to the Father but through me. He makes a very emphatic, exclusive statement. He says, no one can come to the Father. No one can stand before God ever except through me. You can't be good enough. He says, I'm not a way. I'm not a truth. I'm not a life. You can come to the Father through me. He says it emphatically different. I'm the only way. I'm the only life. I'm the only way to the Father. So while culture would have us say, your truth, truth can be your truth, my truth can be my truth, let's coexist. Jesus says that's not the way. Of course, we can coexist and be kind to one another. We can love those who don't love God. But Jesus says, no one comes to the Father but by me. You can't be good enough. You can't earn your way back. There's no other religion that can give you a path back to God, he says. It's only through Jesus. And so when you make this claim, you have to back it up in some way. When you make a claim that says, not only am I the only way, but if you trust me, I will take you and I will guarantee safe passage back to the Father. That's a bold claim. That honestly, we have to trust. Until we're in that moment where we pass from this life to the next, we have to trust Jesus that what he says is true. We have to trust Him that if we believe in Him, He offers us safe passage back to the Father. And we have to believe Him. And the way that we believe Him, I believe, is what He showed us at the tomb. That when He raises from the dead, we believe anything He says. Anything that He says. I think it's extremely important for us to remember all of these things. These are just two of the great promises that were made, many more. And there are moments in your life where the timeline doesn't match up. Maybe your circumstances don't match up. You may be in a place of doubt. Remember the empty tomb. Remember the empty tomb. When it doesn't seem like He knows or cares or has the power to do anything about it, Remember the empty tomb. If Jesus can fulfill this promise, there are no promises that are left empty. 
So the question is this, do you trust Him? Or do you take the words in Scripture to be as empty as His disciples took them to be? I don't think that His disciples had malicious intent. Why would they follow Him while they intentionally didn't believe Him? You don't follow someone that's crazy either. I don't think that they just wrote him off like you do like a crazy uncle at Thanksgiving. Don't listen to him. I just think that they were incredibly disappointed. And I think how they envisioned Jesus pushing his kingdom in, the only way they thought it could happen, didn't. And so when it didn't happen the way that they thought it was going to happen, they sunk back and said, well, maybe he isn't who he said he was. Let's go anoint his body because he's not going to raise from the dead. I think the only answer is this, is that they were listening to Jesus through the lens of how they thought life should be. Every word that Jesus spoke was through this lens and this filter of their own logic their own reasoning, their hopes, their ambitions, their expectations. And when Jesus didn't pass through that filter for them, they thought, he isn't who he said he was. Without a doubt, the most epic moment or the most epic I told you so was the moment at the tomb. Remember, I said this was going to happen. Matthew isn't as gentle with his words when the angel said to him in Matthew chapter 28, don't be afraid. I know what you're looking for. You're looking for Jesus who's been crucified. He is not here. He's risen just as he said. He told you he wasn't going to be here. Every promise ever given in Scripture is just as he said because of the risen tomb. The women weren't the only ones that needed to remember. It seems like there, was, uh, there wasn't one follower of Jesus on the planet that expected this to happen. And worse, when they were confronted with it, they doubted in disbelief rather than choosing to believe and remember. Think about this for a second. So his disciples are locked in a room. Uh, Mary and the other women come to them and tell them that Jesus has risen from the dead and they don't believe. Look at this. In uh, verse 10, now they were uh, Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and also the other women with them were telling these things to the apostles, but these words appeared to them as nonsense, and they would not believe them. They would not, they wouldn't believe. Even after Jesus said, this is what's going to happen. When women came to them and said, this is what has happened, they still said, no. You know Why? Because dead people stay dead. They did not believe. But Peter got up, he ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen wrappings and he went away at his home, marveling at what happened. I love the choice of words here. Marveling at what happened. This is the same Peter who walked on water. He's the same Peter who cut the ear off of a soldier and watched Jesus heal it instantaneously. It's the same Peter who witnessed all of the miracles that are recorded by many. And still he marveled. He marveled. It wasn't as if he went to the tomb and be like, I should have known Jesus. He always does this kind of stuff. 
He went back and was like, how does this happen? What? Somebody not, he was dead. He was surprised. Peter was surprised. He marveled at what happened. There's a healthy marvel, of course. There's a way to marvel at the ocean every time you see it just because it's so big. There's a way to marvel at autumn because it's so beautiful. There's a way to marvel at intrinsic beauty and complexity of humanity. But it shouldn't always be because we're proved wrong. You should marvel because He's good and that He's God. And I think every time, if we just take the time to marvel at His works, maybe will decrease the amount of times we have to marvel at his faithfulness. He did what he said he was going to do. He is who he said he is. So John's account, the only account that that has Jesus on the scene, and he has this interaction with Mary Magdalene. It's a really interesting uh, interaction. It's very short, But I want to read it from the Gospel of John. John chapter 21 through 18. He says this, Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came uh, early to the tomb. Now again, so John's Gospel says Mary Magdalene came to the tomb. The other Gospels include Mary in this, this journey to the tomb, but John is choosing to focus on this interaction. While it was still dark and saw the stone had already been removed from the tomb. And so she ran and came and told Simon Peter and the other disciple whom Jesus loved. And he said to them, and said to them, they have taken the Lord from the tomb and we do not know where they have put him. So Peter and the other disciple, the other disciple is the one that's writing this, John. It gets kind of funny here in a second. The other disciple left, and they were going to the tomb. And the two were running together, and the other disciple ran ahead, faster than Peter, and came to the tomb first. I love that. I love, I love that little, like, I'm going to, literally for the rest of all time, Peter, humanity is going to know, I won. But Peter came to the tomb, um, and he stooped and looked in and saw the linen wrappings lying there. And however, he did not go in. So Simon Peter also came following him, and he entered the tomb, and he looked at the linen wrappings lying there, and the face cloth which has been on his head, not lying with the linen wrappings, but folded up in in a place by itself. So the other disciple who had come uh, to the tomb also entered in, and he saw and believed. And for they did not yet understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. So the disciples went away again to their own tomb, homes. But Mary was standing outside the tomb, weeping. So as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting, at one at the head and one at the feet, where the body of Jesus had been lying. Then they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, because they have taken away my Lord. I don't know where they have put him. Again, Mary is not expecting Jesus to have been raised from the dead. Her only explanation is, somebody has taken him. And when she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, and yet she did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Who are you seeking? 
And thinking that he was gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, please tell me where you put him, and I will take him away. And Jesus said to her, and I love this, Mary. He says her name. And she turned and said to him in Hebrew, Rabbi, which means teacher. And Jesus said to her, Stop clinging for me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I'm ascending, listen to this, to my Father and your Father. My God and your God. Mary Magdalene came and announced to the disciples, I've seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. A couple of things here. First, he calls her by her name, Mary. We don't know a ton about Mary Magdalene. People have read into her story. They've blended different stories of different Marys uh, into hers and then tried to condense it into one person. Some uh, believe that she was the prostitute that washed Jesus' feet in Luke chapter 7. We don't know that that's true. What we do know is that she was lost and then she was found. Uh, She had at least seven demons that Jesus cast out of her in Luke chapter 8. We know that's true. We know that she financially supported the ministry of Jesus. We know that's true. We know that she welcomed, uh, was welcomed as one of the disciples and followers of Jesus. We know that's true. And we know that she was present at the crucifixion. We know that's true. We also know that she was the first person that Jesus chose to appear to. The first person that Jesus appears to is not Peter, is not John, is not James, but Mary Magdalene, a woman. One of the reasons why this is uh, difficult to get around um, the historical accuracy of the Bible and the resurrection is that in that day, uh, women were not valued and or respected for anything that they had to say. In fact, in Jewish court, a woman could not, if a woman or women, multiple of them, saw a crime or something take place, their testimony only mattered if their father or husband came with them and vouched for what they were saying. Think about this for a second. Not in Scripture, we don't find that kind of uh, activity in Scripture, but in, in the culture, that was the case. And so for, for Jesus to first appear to a woman and for the gospel writers to record this is a massive deal. If they were trying to swindle someone and, and deceive someone, this would not be the way to do it. This would be me, like me coming to you and saying, I have got a fantastic, fantastic, sure bet financial uh, investment for you. Like it's high stakes, high reward. So you're going to want to clear out your savings account. You're going to want to bet your life on this. And the reason why I know it's going to pay out is because Avon, my 10-year-old, was uh, not 10. She's 11 now. Yes. My 11-year-old was telling me how great of investment this was going to be. At that moment, you'd be like, out. I'm sorry, bro. I would advise you against the financial like stability of your whole life on, on investment advice from an 11-year-old. In the same way, I know it sounds crazy, in the same way, culturally here, 
when they would write that women were giving an account to Jesus' resurrection, they'd be like, huh? Now I'm out. So Jesus chooses to reveal himself first to Mary Magdalene. Here's the second incredible thing. Jesus calls her by name. I love this. He calls her by name because he knows her. He knows where she's been. He he knows her past. And he's engaging her in the resurrection. And then notice what he says. My father, your father. My God, your God. Jesus is bringing her into the kingdom of God. This is incredible. That knowing her story, he says, my father is just as much your father now. Through the resurrection, Christ is bringing Mary into the family of God. There's this uh, theological term that we kind of throw out sometimes called uh, union with Christ. It comes primarily through a passage in Romans chapter 5, 12 through 21. Paul's writing here and he says this, Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin, in this way death came to all people because all sinned. He would later write, all have sinned. To be sure, sin was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not charged against anyone's account where there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from that time of Adam to the time of Moses and even uh, to those who did not sin by breaking a command as Adam did, who is a pattern of the one to come. But the gift is not like the trespass. For if many died by the trespass of one man, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? Nor can the gift of God be compared with the result of one man's sin. The judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation, but the gift followed many trespasses and brought justification. For if by the trespass of one man, death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? Verse 18, Consequently, just as one trespass resulted in the condemnation for all people, so also one righteous act resulted in justification and life for all people. For just as though the disobedience of one man, that the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man, the many will be made righteous. Will be made righteous. The law was brought in so that the trespass made increase, but where sin increased, grace increased all the more. So that just as sin reigned in death, 
So also grace may reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Here's what this means. Our union with Christ guarantees our position before the Father. Our union with Christ guarantees our position before the Father. This is why Jesus would say to Mary, my Father and your Father. Mary, because of your faith in me, it's not that He's my Father and you get to come with me. He's now your Father. My God and your God. Union with Christ means what's true for Jesus is true for those who put their faith in Jesus. Think about this for a second. Union with Christ means what's true for Jesus is true for those who put their faith in Jesus. Jesus is righteous, holy, and blameless beyond reproach. And so what's true for us who put our faith in Jesus is that's how the Father sees us. Holy, blameless, and beyond reproach. Right, he sees us as righteous. A, a lot of you, as you, you know, uh, especially my two boys, Brody and Levi. Brody, 15, Levi's 12. And uh, if you know us and know how, how we do things or act, some of our mannerisms are the same. Some of you say, like, Brody looks identical. But here's the funny thing, is, is my face does not unlock Brody's phone. And his face does not unlock my phone. His fingerprints don't, don't put my password into the computer, and my fingerprints don't do that for him. We're different. We may look alike, but we're very different. The Scripture says that that because of Christ's death on the cross, His burial and resurrection, when the Father looks at you, He sees Jesus. Think about this. Not because He's dumb. Not because His vision is poor. But because He chooses to look at you now and your faith in Christ and say, I see only the righteousness of God. And this is the part that our faith come in. The Scripture talks about the robes of righteousness, Christ's robes of righteousness that we put on. And if you're like me, you put on these robes of righteousness and you're like, these don't fit. I look like a clown. And you're telling me, Jesus, that if I place your robes of righteousness on me that I know don't fit, and I walk into heaven before your Father who's holy and blameless and requires that of me because I have these robes of righteousness on, your robes of righteousness, He looks at me not as a clown who's trying to pretend that I'm now righteous, but you're telling me that He looks at me as righteous. He looks at me and says, Absolutely holy, blameless, beyond reproach. Jesus says, yeah. Do you believe me? 
you believed me. Salvation is a gift of God. A gift of grace. Scripture says, through faith. So he places this robes of righteousness on or he offers it to you and says, do you believe me? And I love that the resurrection compels us and pushes us to say, if he did that, then as ridiculous as I look wearing these robes of righteousness, I get to enter into heaven and before God, not with trepidation, not in fear, but in full confidence that he doesn't see Brian, broken center, sinner, he sees Jesus. My Father, and your Father, my God and your God. This is what Jesus promises. Would you pray with me? Lord, I, I'm grateful for this interaction that you give us outside of the tomb. I can't imagine if it were me, I spent my life with these men and women how discouraging it would be for none of them to be waiting. I imagine even in my own selfishness, I'd be frustrated with them. And instead, Lord, You show us so much compassion that when You said You were going to raise from the dead, and You did, and no one was there waiting, everyone was doubting, you still extended this promise to Mary, my Father and your Father, my God and your God. That through the resurrection, you give life. And so Lord, I, I pray for those in the room who may have never accepted that offer. as you pursue them and holding out your robes of righteousness. Lord, either some of us in the room trying to clean up our own robes, wipe the stains off with good behavior, or effort, good intention. Lord, I, I pray that you would open our eyes today to understand that no good thing can clean our robes. Lord, I pray that we would take you for your word and trust you that if we take your robes of righteousness, we will be saved. Lord, I pray for those in the room today that desperately need to put on your robes of righteousness. Lord, I pray for those in the room today that may be living in a circumstance or a, an extended season where it's hard to believe you. 
expectations for life have not been met. And it's easy to look around and say, God, if you were, if you really cared, why haven't you done this? If you were really powerful, how come you haven't fixed this? Lord, it's really easy to look around in many circumstances and have doubt. So Lord, I, I ask that you would speak to that person today. And through the resurrection, you would echo the words and the truth that you have not been forgotten. Lord, would you solidify those things in our hearts today? As Jesse leads us in a time of response and reflection, I would encourage you a couple things. You know, we always open our uh, cafeteria up through the curtains for prayer. If you've never chosen to put on the robes of righteousness, I, I would beg you to go back and talk to someone back there that would love to lead you in a way that helps you understand the gift of eternal life. It's really simple. Someone will be waiting back there for you. They'll walk you through those curtains and they'll just have a time of prayer with you. Maybe if, um, if like the disciples, your circumstance has led you to a place of doubt and fear, we would love to pray with you. We would love to just pray prayers of encouragement over you and let you know that God has not forgotten you. I would ask that you would even just, just believe God enough to, to take that step, to, to, to turn and walk down the aisle. Let one of our prayer partners just welcome you and just pray for you. Okay, give us the courage to obey, whatever it is today. In Jesus' name, amen.